Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In the first half of the 20th century, New York City built one of the world's greatest subway systems. Since then, the system has shrunk, staggered, revived, and staggered again. In the middle of all this was a proposal to build a subway under 2nd Avenue in Manhattan, an idea that has been around since the 1920s, but only became a reality in a shortened form in 2017. The story of the 2nd Avenue subway and how it reflects the problems and possibilities of the subway system around it, is the subject of Last Subway, The Long Wait for the Next Train in New York City, by Philip Mark Plotch, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Master of Public Administration Program at St. Peter's University. We're here thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Phil. All right, thanks thanks for having me, Robert. You start your book with an anecdote about a job interview and how it reflected and shaped your thinking about the subways. Can you recount that for us? Sure. Um, I was working at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority at the time. That's the region's transportation agency. Um, And I worked on big projects. So um, one of the things that I was working on was um, some of the planning for the Second Avenue subway, as a matter of fact, Um, and extending the subway line that went to Times Square, bringing it to the far west side and combining that with um, a football stadium for the New York Jets. And that was going to be also an expanded convention center site. And it was going to be the site for the Olympics in New York City's 2012. Um, so it, so I was working on some really big projects. Um, and sometimes they would go ahead and then, then sometimes they wouldn't. There's all sorts of factors that go into whether one of these big projects is going to go ahead or not. Um, and I remember um, hearing about a job at the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation. Um, so this is after 9-11. And I was really excited by the opportunity to help rebuild, rebuild New York after the terrorist attack. Um, and they were looking for somebody who um, knew something about transportation policy. And I was a good fit. And they asked me at the interview what I thought about extending the Long Island Railroad into Lower Manhattan, because at that it just goes into Penn Station, which is in Midtown. Um, also taking a train called the air train that went around JFK Airport and bring that to lower Manhattan too. Because right now you can't take a train directly from Manhattan to one of the airports. So lower Manhattan business community really w- was trying to figure out how to make the suburbs better connected with lower Manhattan because they were at a disadvantage with Midtown Manhattan. So I'm asked at the interview, um, they said, uh, um, it was uh, the vice president. He said, what do you think of our proposal to build this new train line that would go to lower Manhattan? And the cost estimate was at least $6 billion. Um, and the $6 billion is obviously a lot of money. And there's all these other needs in the in the New York area. And I knew this was not a top priority for the any of the agencies that would be needing to fund him. So uh, they asked me, so what do you think about about this project? And I was thinking, yeah, okay, I could tell him the truth. Like, 
um, you know, great project, but it's really not going to go anywhere because it's not a high priority for anybody. Um, or I could say, you know, it's probably going to be more than $6 billion than you expect. Um, I decided I'm just going to go with, with exactly what I was thinking, which is, you know, it doesn't really matter if you build it or not. The important thing right now, after September 11th, is to build up the confidence in people that we're going to rejuvenate lower Manhattan. And I pointed out, out the window and I said, there's Goldman Sachs and it's important for them to know that we're doing everything we possibly can. And um, there was um, some other firms, uh, Lehman Brothers, I think was out there at the time um, and a couple of the other big financial institutions. And I pointed to them and I said, the important thing is for them to think we're going to build it, not necessarily to build it. And the vice president, I remember he took his fist and he banged them on the table and he said, that's exactly right. Um, it, the important thing wasn't necessarily what you're doing, but what people think you're doing. Um, and I guess it worked in Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan is doing as well as it ever has. More people live there than ever before. And uh, business um, and financial institutions are, have been doing great down there. So illusion matters as much as concrete achievement in the creation of the subway and the transit system? Um, I think that's a little bit it. Um, also, when uh, mayors and governors announce big new projects, they're going to get great press. And everybody's going to think they're visionaries and heroes for going ahead and addressing a big problem. So if I told you that we're going to be putting some money into fixing up all the turnstiles or the vending machines at different subway stations, nobody would really care all that much. Um, if I told you we're fixing up the facilities where you fix the trains, to modernize them, nobody would be very excited about that one either. But if you say, hey, we are building a new rail line and that's gonna speed up everybody's service in the whole region um, and it's gonna connect people in places that otherwise couldn't get connected, everybody's gonna get very excited. Um, so people get excited about things like the Second Avenue subway or Long Island Railroad, building a new train station or new trains to airplanes, uh, airports. Um, People get excited about those big, sexy projects, and they sometimes forget about the day-to-day the -day projects that are equally important. In this context, how did you get interested in the Second Avenue subway? So I had worked for about a year or so on some of the planning, but I didn't understand the context. Like, I didn't understand how it went back 100 years, and it, and it was hard to know where it was going to go in 20 years. Um, so to me, um, it was a really interesting idea to be thinking about the planning for expansion of the subway system. Because I had just published a book with Rutgers University Press called Politics Across the Hudson. And to me, that was really fascinating because it was all about why it takes 30 years to build a new bridge. Like what are the, the political problems? The engineering problems usually aren't, aren't the big problems. It's usually politics and money, um, which I, I think are um, a little harder to solve oftentimes than the engineering problem. Um, it's somewhat easy to um, get a man on the moon, but it's a little harder to solve social policies and to bring cons consensus to people. Um, so it was really interesting, interesting to me, like 30 years at Tappan Zee Bridge. So my next book should be, oh, why does it take 100 years to build a subway line? But it turns out it's much more than 100 years because for the uh, Second Avenue subway on the east side of Manhattan, we've built one quarter of what we're supposed to build. It's a nice one quarter, three great new stations, but we certainly have a long way to go. Let's look back in a little bit of historical context for a moment. 
when the subway system was built in the early 20th century, what were its great strengths? What were its great flaws? So when the first, the, you should know that the, there were elevated trains before there were subways. So in the 19th century, uh, New York had an elevated railroad that was right above 6th Avenue, and there was one above 9th Avenue, and there's one above 2nd Avenue, and there's one above 3rd Avenue. Um, if you go out into the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn, in some neighborhoods, you can still see these elevated railroads. Um, those were easier to build in the 19th century. You can't, not, not many people are going to accept um, elevated lines now in Manhattan. Um, so those have all been torn down, um, and they were, it was popular to tear them down at the time, thinking that we're going to build new subways. So, for example, these two east side elevated railroads were torn down because a new Second Avenue subway was going to get built, but it just hasn't gotten built yet. Um, so the, what was great, back to your question, what was great about um, the subway system that, that was built was um, it was inexpensive for people. It was a nickel to ride all over the city. Um, so you could go from the Bronx to Manhattan to Queens to Brooklyn for a nickel. Um, it tied in neighborhoods together and it expanded New York. So places that weren't accessible before are now accessible. Um, so if it took you an hour and a half by a horse or carriage or bus or trolley or whatever it was, you're not gonna commute every day. But all of a sudden, if that location in upper Manhattan or any of the other boroughs is only a half hour away, all of a sudden it becomes much more desirable to live. So you're going to have more people living there. Shops are going to open up. Um, so what it does is it expands the, the the area where people are living in New York. So New York, can, his population could be bigger. So New York without the subway could not support a population of 8 million people. Um, New York without a subway could not have skyscrapers. Um, just like skyscrapers need elevators, a major city like New York City needs a subway system. Otherwise, you couldn't accommodate all of those workers and all those residents. So that was the, the best part of the subway. The worst part was, um, if you think about a car from 1904, it's not going to meet today's standards. So a subway system from 1904 is the same thing. That 1904 subway system, um, the stations are, are tight. Um, they didn't anticipate the rush hour crowding that we have today. Um, um, it's, it's not a very pleasant experience getting on the subways. Um, and retrofitting a 100-year-old system is incredibly expensive and takes forever to do. After World War II, there was a choice. There was discussion of expanding the subways. There was discussion of building more highways. What happened? So if you build a subway, like the Second Avenue subway, it, in the 1950s, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. For that same amount of money, you could build expressways in the Bronx. You could build expressways in Staten Island and Queens and Brooklyn. You can tie them together with bridges. Building subways underground um, is incredibly expensive. Um, and then operating them, uh, nobody could, nobody in the, after the 1930s or so could make money operating a subway system because people wouldn't be using it enough during the off-peak periods, non-rush hour periods, for it to, to, to be self-sustaining. So that means it costs a lot of money to build and it costs a lot of money to operate. And that money um, was used to build highways instead. Um, and that was the popular thing to do. That's what businesses wanted. 
that's what the public wanted and that's what real estate interests wanted. They wanted um, the city to be tied together with a modern highway system, which it is today. In the 1980s, the subway system seemed to be in a fatal crisis. What happened? Um, so just go back a little bit. So one of the things I think is really interesting about the last subway is it puts things into context. So like today, why do we have decrepit subway systems? Um, or why do certain lines not go in certain places? Or why is the population in a certain place? So to look at the 1980s, you got to think about what happened in the 1970s. And to think about the 1970s, it helps to go back to the late 1960s. So in the late 1960s, there was a governor named Nelson Rockefeller. He was a billionaire and he loved to build. Um, people used to say he had an edifice complex. So um, Governor Rockefeller, he was responsible for expanding the SUNY system and building lots of campuses. Um, he plowed uh, dozens of acres of building, old historic buildings down in different neighborhoods to build things like um, the, down, re, the downtown mall in Albany and Lincoln Center on the west side of New York um, and the World Trade Center too. Um, so um, one of the things that he wanted to do was expand the transit system. Um, so he wanted Long Island Railroad to come into the east side of Manhattan. He wanted the Second Avenue subway to be built because it had been talked about for 50 years. Um, he wanted to be the one to do it. So what he did was he poured a lot of money into expanding the transit system, and it came at a cost. You couldn't expand the transit system and maintain it properly at the same time. In the 1960s, Governor Nelson Rockefeller had what some people called an edifice complex. How did that shape the possibilities for the subway system? So Governor Rockefeller loved to build new things. Um, he liked to do it in the private sector, and he liked to do it in the public sector. So he liked to build things like Lincoln Center, or the World Trade Center, or redevelop downtown Albany. In the transit sphere, he wanted to expand Long Island Railroad, so it had a new station on the east side of Manhattan. It already had one on the west side of Penn Station. He wanted to build new subway lines in the Bronx, Queens. He wanted to connect the Kennedy Airport with Manhattan. He wanted to build a Second Avenue subway. It was an extensive network that he really wanted to, um, to, to fund. Um, and it came at the expense of the existing subway, state, subway system, where not enough funds were, were used to maintain the existing subway. So um, if you look what happened after he broke ground for the Second Avenue subway in 1972 and 1973, um, the subway cars um, all were defaced with graffiti. The stations were all covered with graffiti. The um, the the uh, breakdown of the subway trains was frequent. So every five or six thousand miles, the subway uh, subway cars would break down. Now it's over a hundred thousand miles that they can go without breaking down. Um, service was unreliable, and by the early eighties, uh, there had been a consensus among business people that this was an issue that needed to be addressed. And a new chairman came in named Richard Ravitch. Richard Ravitch was a, a strong, independent leader who was willing to take on the legislature, willing to take on the governor, and to do what he thought was best for the subway system. Um, and in a very courageous move, he focused on restoring the subway system. And he, he used the term that hadn't been used before in New York, state of good repair, to bring all of the facilities and equipment up to this state of good repair so you don't have equipment that's 30 or 40 years old that's expensive to maintain and unreliable. So like in your house, 
you might replace the windows every 30 or 40 years if they start to get stuck and they um, they're not opening they're not opening and closing and they start they start breaking. So you replace your stove, you replace your refrigerator, um, not exactly on the same cycle, right? Maybe windows can last 50 years, but your refrigerator maybe lasts 10 years and your stove will last maybe 15 or 20 years. So he thought everything needed to be replaced when it's more expensive to maintain and it's unreliable. So that's what he did. He he borrowed billions of dollars and the MTA set up its first capital program and it coincided with the rejuvenation of, of New York in the 1980s. Wall Street got better. And then in the 1990s, New York City got much safer. More tourists came in. Businesses started to come back. Um, so the the renaissance of New York and the renaissance of the subway system system went hand in hand. Yet you point out that by the early 2000s, subway ridership was up, but the Metropolitan Transportation Authority was in poor financial shape. How could this be if ridership's going up? So the New York subway system is always in poor financial shape. Since, since World War I, it's been in poor financial shape. Um, there's just never enough money and the needs are insatiable. Um, the labor costs are very high. Um, there's lots of maintenance that has to get done. And there's always a need to upgrade everything. Um, and there's never enough money from tolls or fares or taxes, wherever the money is coming from to pay for the subway system. Most people don't realize it, but the subways lose money. Um, and the only reason New York has a subway system is because the subway system has been merged with Bridges and Tunnels Authority in New York. So the reason you're spending 10 or 15 or $20, whatever it is, to go across some of these bridges and tunnels is because it's going, it's being used to subsidize the subway. Plus, part of your income or payroll tax is used for the transit system, uh, sales tax, mortgage recording tax, all sorts of taxes are used to maintain the system, but it's just never enough. And just so you know, it's interesting that the New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority has over $40 billion in debt, $40 billion with a B, which is more than dozens of states and countries in the world. So finally, how did the circumstances come together that the Second Avenue subway would finally be built? What happened to make that take place? So in order to get any big project done in most cities is a sort of a confluence of events that has to occur. Um, first, the economy has to be strong because you're not going to go into multi-billion dollar projects unless the economy is strong or there is some big largesse from the federal government. So the economy is strong. Um, the politics have to be right. So the right people in power who have to be supporting your project. Um, you need business and labor support. You need community support. You need local city support. And all of that came together in 2000. The governor of New York had a multi-billion dollar long hour project that he wanted to get done. Um, and the only way he could get that done was by getting New York City elected officials on board with it um, in the state legislature. And their number one project to match with Long Island Railroad was the Second Avenue subway, two projects that have been going hand in hand for 50 years. Um, so they had the political support. They got some federal funding for it. Um, the New York borrowed lots of money for it. 
Um, and they also had a huge amount of civic support. So transit advocates, construction industry, labor unions, all got together and said, this is really important for New York. And then the congressional delegation. So the senators and the congressmen in Washington, state legislators, everybody had to say, this is our number one transportation priority. And when it was, then it got the money to go ahead and do it. Once the work got underway, what were conditions like underground for the workers who were working on it? Can you describe that scene for us? Sure. So just so you know, the construction of the subway in the 21st century is different than the construction in the early 20th century. So in the early 20th century, when a subway was built, um, men would be using shovels, and it was all men, um, and they would open up a street, maybe 10 or 15 feet down. They would lay down the tracks. And when you're walking alongside this big open excavation hole, um, people would accidentally fall in. There couldn't be any traffic. It would be noisy. It would be dusty. Uh, people would die on all of these big construction projects because they weren't all that safe. Um, in the early 21st century, it's very different. Um, there's extensive safety precautions. The streets are covered up. Um, there's a lot more utilities that you have to deal with when you open up a street. So there's gas pipes, and sewer pipes, and water pipes. There's your internet connections and telephones. There's emergency um, utilities. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this stuff hasn't been marked out. So the engineers would open up the street, and they would see pipes, and they would see wires, and they'd see cables and conduits, and they weren't exactly sure what they were looking at. It was just like rubber bands or spaghetti that wasn't properly labeled for many different reasons over 100 years. So it took forever to figure out like what was what. Sometimes they would lose connections to, to different buildings because they didn't realize it, it, what exactly it was doing. Um, so it was, despite all the precautions they took, it was still just very disruptive to the community. Um, and the sidewalks got narrow. Um, it was very noisy. Um, the workers were mostly underground in very tight conditions. Um, and this is, there's a, the people who work on building tunnels, they're, known, they're colloquially known as sand hogs. And they have a tough job, and it can be pretty dangerous, even despite all the safety equipment they have right now. Um, but New York decided they wanted to build or this subway in, the, in a way that would least impact the residents. And to do that, they built it very deep underground. So they tried to do wherever they could under the utilities, except where the stations would be. So these men and women now are about 80 feet deep. Um, building stations and building tunnels with these giant machines that we have today. Machines that are four or five blocks long that dig through rock and then the rock goes out the back of the machine and then it goes up to the street and then it gets trucked out in New York or to New Jersey or to the Bronx. So they're awesome machines, brave men and women and lots of disruption to the community and nobody on the Upper East Side was happy during this construction. It's funny, because on Second Avenue, everybody wanted to a Second Avenue subway until the MTA announced, this is where we're going to build it. These are the stations. These are the buildings that we need to knock down. This is where the entrances are going to be. And this is all the years of, of uh, uh, trouble that you're going to have. And then all of a sudden, it was not the most popular project in the world anymore. It, when it was built, it came out shorter than some original plans had envisioned. Why was it a shorter version of the Second Avenue subway that was finally built? Money, 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 which is sort of, I guess, the answer to most questions. So the in 
the 1920s, the idea was you would build the Second Avenue subway from the Bronx all the way to the financial district in Lower Manhattan. Um, by the 1990s, it seemed a little too complex to go up to the Bronx, and the need didn't seem as great as it once had because the Bronx didn't have the same number of residents. So they shortened it so it would just go from the top of Manhattan to the bottom of Manhattan. Um, and then it was supposed to be done by 2020, it, that, that 125th Street in East Harlem all the way to Lower Manhattan. So it's 2020, and they, they've been able to do one quarter of it, um, which is, um, it's a shame that it takes so long. What, what's, what I always think is funny is in the 1880s, the Second Avenue elevated line, which follows the same exact route, was built in 18 months. <laughs> 18 months to build dozens of stations from the top of the island to the bottom of the island. And now it takes decades or centuries to actually build the entire subway line. What strikes me as a subway rider is that that relatively short line that was built then connects with other lines. Now, is, does this make an improvement or is this a bit of a dodge or something, a bit of both? Well, it, it was smart the way they did it. So if you start a subway line, it doesn't connect to anything. You can't get to maintenance facilities. You can't get to storage yards. So what they in the 1960s, there was a subway line that went east-west. It went from Manhattan to Queens underneath 63rd Street. And it was built with an opening that would go north and it would go up on 2nd Avenue. So this is built, designed in the 1960s. It wasn't until 40 years later before that connection was actually made. So uh, good foresight when they designed it and good, and good thinking that they actually kept that connection in so it could be used one day. And we know um, that today is you. What's that? And we know that train today is the queue. It is, yes. And it's wildly popular and hundreds of thousands of people pre-coronavirus were using that, those stations. How do you rate the governors and the subway system for their impact on it? Let's start with Mario Cuomo. So Mario Cuomo grew up in Queens and he was a big union supporter. So when he thought about transportation projects, he often thought them about them in the context of the construction jobs and how many jobs we can get for people and the kind of support he would get from construction industry. Um, his successor was George Pataki. George Pataki was very pro-environment. He was also very pro-transit. He one of one of the lights he remembered growing up in Westchester, in northern Westchester, was taking the train to Grand Central, hanging out late with his buddies, and then sleeping overnight on the benches before he got back on the train. Um, so he had a, a very broad vision for what New York could look like with an expanded transit system. And he put this vision together, um, and it had to do with Long Island Railroad and Metro North. It had to do with restoring the train stations. And... Uh, when a governor announces a vision at the beginning of three of its three terms, it actually can help, even if not those projects get done, it can shape the priorities for future generations. So we're still trying to build and finish the projects that he envisioned back in the 1990s. And then the current governor, Andrew Cuomo, he was in office when the Second Avenue subway finally opened. How would you rate him? on the Second Avenue subway and the rest of the system? So Andrew Cuomo, when he first came into office, he didn't pay a lot of attention to the transportation system. Um, he knew that for the most part, you get bad press when you're associated with the subways. 
Nobody puts you on the front page of the paper because your train came on time. You're going to get, um, if you're associated with the subways, you're going to get beat up because there's delay, because there's a derailment, because there's an accident, because things are dirty, trash isn't getting picked up, fares are going up. So better to be kind of hands off. Even though he did have most of the appointees on the authorities board for the transportation system. So he kept hands off. Um, and then he heard about the Second Avenue subway. And it was going to open up in a couple of years on January 1st, which is a really special day. It was the, the day he had been inaugurated was January 1st. It was also the day that his father had died. Um, and his father was uh, um, his, his role model, the former, former governor, Mario Cuomo. Um, so when he heard about January 1st, he heard about the big project. He liked building big projects because he had um, been pushing and opening the, um, the new Tappan Zee Bridge in New York. This was sort of another project he could take on and, and get something done where it had been a long time for things to get done. So in the last two years of the project, he became very hands-on, regularly met with the contractors, pushed people aside to say, I'm going to take the heat if this thing is late. Um, and he he created this, uh, I, I forget how to pronounce it, I think it's a spirit de corps. It's this, this feeling among people that we're all in this together, we're going to meet that January 1st deadline, and we're going to do whatever it takes. And, and people worked longer hours than usual. They worked with people they weren't used to dealing with. They overcame obstacles they didn't usually overcome. And they met that January 1st deadline. Um, and he deserves credit for meeting that deadline. On the other hand, um, when you put all of your resources, time, money, focus, meetings, into one project, then other things kind of fall by the wayside. And that's what happened with opening the beginning of the Second Avenue subway. Um, other things were less priority. and um, there were problems that occurred that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. What about mayors? Do they have much impact on the subway system? So it's changed over time. So New York subway was actually built originally by a private company. Um, and the private company thought they could make a profit for five cents on each subway ride. Uh, unfortunately for them, they entered into these agreements that said you cannot raise your nickel fare. So as the cost of living doubled and tripled and quadrupled, these private lines went bankrupt. The city took over them. So first the city wouldn't let them raise the fare. So the mayors had a lot of say in the sort of how those subways would expand and operate and be maintained by not by starving them. Then they took it over and all of a sudden, the subways had to compete with schools and roads and bridges and sewer systems and all these other things. Um, and that wasn't favorable for the transit system. Um, then a trans New York City Transit Authority was set up because the state no longer trusted the city to operate it. And then the Transit Authority couldn't do a good job either because they didn't have enough money. So that's when it got folded into the bridges and tunnels. So the mayors used to have a lot of power. Um, now the bully pulpit is probably their biggest power. They have a few appointees on the board of the Transportation Authority, but really they, they have microphones, they get media attention, so they can focus on problems. And that works in many ways. It worked for Mayor Bloomberg because he was able to get resources to extend the subway line, like I said, to the far west side where he wanted the Olympics and a football stadium. Um, so he was actually able to come up uh, with his own money from the city to do that. Um, but for the most part, uh, mayors have limited roles in the transportation system, but it doesn't mean that people don't think they do. 
And when people think you have a responsibility, all of a sudden you have to have a responsibility. So looking back at this story that you've told in your book, what are the lessons from the Second Avenue subway experience that should inform people who think about the subway system going forward? So I would say that there's three important lessons that come out of the book. I think the first is you have to remember that different people have different perspectives on improvements. So if you are an elected official, you're thinking about what's best for me for November or the following November or maybe three years from November. So you have a relatively short time frame that you're thinking about improvements. So if you can't build the Second Avenue subway in three, in four years, maybe it's not the most important thing to you because you can't get it done. So other projects might take priority. So in New York, we have had Wi-Fi in our subway stations because you could do that faster than you can building a new subway line. Um, if you if you're a business and you have a, a, an asset or a facility, you tend to think longer term. You tend to think, okay, where's it going to be in 20 years? Where's it going to be in 30 years? Because you're going to have that asset a long time. If you're the an elected official, you're not thinking 20 or 30 years. You're thinking short term. So you have to remember that your elected official is going to be responsive to you. So if you're the media or you're a voter, if you only talk about what's important for the next year or two, then and you only give people credit for the things they're doing over the next year or two, then their focus is going to be over the next year or two. And that's dangerous when it comes to long-term facilities like subways and, and railroads. So the, the first thing is to think about the short-term thinking. The second is when a city focuses on a big, sexy project. So it could be Second Avenue. It could be a new airport. It could be a new railroad line. When they focus on these big, sexy projects, they can lose focus on the day-to-day -day things that are more important. So today, it's more important to be thinking about um, how do we deal with um, potential terrorist threat? How do we deal with um, the climate change and how that's going to affect the transit system? How do we deal with the, um, the, the crowding that we have in our existing stations? If you announce a big, sexy project, um, you're going to get lots of media attention, but you might not be focusing on what the most important priority is at the time. And I'd say the third lesson is when you look at the big projects that got done over time in the last subway, you can see it's always because of this coalition of people. It's bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats. It's local, state, and federal. It's civic leaders. It's residents. When everybody is on the same page, when everybody can address a problem the same way, when everybody's focusing on a problem, you can solve that problem. And that problem doesn't necessarily have to be in the transit area. It could be in the schools area. It could be in the sewer area. It could be in the coronavirus area. But the important thing is to try to bring people together and to put together a plan that everybody can buy into and then work towards. You know, you've said that money, money, money is always the problem. Is there a way that you could reimagine or reinvent the financial base of the subway system that would give it an adequate financial footing? So speculate in, other, in other parts of the world, one of the ways that the transit agencies have been able to make money is from real estate. So if you extend a subway line 
and develop the real estate around it, you can actually pay for the expansion of that system, which is how the extension of the number seven line that goes to the far west side happened. It was the people who own property on the far west side are now paying the cost of that subway extension because their property is worth so much more. So if you think about a place in New Jersey or you think about a place in the Bronx that doesn't have good transit access now, if you built a train to it, all of a sudden it could be worth so much more. So whoever owns that property is gaining value. So if it's a private owner, they could pay for it. Or if the state or the city or the transportation authority own that land, they could pay for that also. So real estate is, I would say, the biggest way that you could change the, change the financial underpinnings. And some places like in Hong Kong, that's how they've managed it. Any final thoughts that you want to pass along to everybody from mayors to subway riders for the future about what you've learned doing this book? I think it's really important to understand your history because you can't understand a problem today unless you understand what happened before it. And you can't figure out where to go or how to solve a problem unless you have some context for it. I, I didn't set out in my career to be thinking about the history of transportation, but it reminded me of somebody I was once talking to who was a 19th century historian of the Czech Republic. And he explained to me, he was a 19th century historian. Um, and I remember talking to him and he said at the time he was learning about 17th century Czech Republic. Cause he said, you couldn't understand the 19th century unless you understood the 18th and 17th century. And the next time I saw him, um, he said he was now studying the 8th century because you couldn't understand the 17th or 16th or 15th century unless you went all the way back to the 8th century. So I'd say it's the same thing with all of the public policy issues that we have today. You have to understand how we got to that place that we've been if you want to understand how to improve and go to a better place. You got a next project coming up? I do. And I'm very excited about it. I'm spending a lot more time thinking about that than the Second Avenue subway. So. <laughs> I'm working with uh, Jen Nellis, who is an expert on regional governance, and we're writing a book about the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is really fascinating because it's been around for about 100 years, like the Second Avenue subway. Um, and they operate the three major airports in New York. They have the bridges and the tunnels that connect New York and New Jersey. It was America's first public authority. They own the World Trade Center. Uh, they have the PATH train that goes between New Jersey and New York. So the politics are really fascinating. Um, I remember when I first started writing a book about the politics of a bridge, somebody said to me, who would care? And then a couple of months later, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, shut down lanes on the George Washington Bridge. And all of a sudden, his political fortunes just died because of Bridgegate. Um, so the politics of bridges can be really fascinating. And the politics of airports, bridges, trains, tunnels, seaports, and World Trade Center are equally fascinating, too. Well, we look forward to that project. This has been Philip Mark Plotz, the author of Last Subway, The Long Wait for the Next Train in New York City. Thanks for talking to us. Hey, thanks so much.